1: clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to FYI, ARK's For Your Innovation podcast, where we talk about disruptive innovation and interview lots of interesting people. Uh, today, I'm here with Ali Erman my fellow analyst. I'm Tasha Keeney. Allie, what are we talking about today? We're
2: talking about what I always love to talk about, which is gene therapy, gene editing, sort of where it came from, what it evolved to, base editing, prime editing, uh, proteome editing. I mean, there's just so much we can talk to. Our guest today is, is pretty amazing. So I'm excited. I'm excited to get into the conversation.
0: Okay. So ed- editing of all kinds. And, and why, why do we care so much about gene editing? Why are we always talking about it? Yeah. So,
2: you know, first of all, it could potentially cure disease, which could be huge. We've seen some pretty, really interesting data come out, you know, from CRISPR therapeutics and others that sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia could potentially be cured uh, by a gene edit, which is really, really exciting. Um, We're also seeing that gene therapy and editing trials are basically increasing basically fivefold since 2010. So today we have about 10 approved drugs. Um, we have many, many, many in clinic. And then if you think about that sort of adjusting for the typical trial failure rate, we're thinking about 170 gene therapies could be approved um, and commercialized during, you know, the next decade. So a lot coming down the pipe to be excited
0: about. Wow. Okay. So that that's, you said 10 today, you know, over a hundred within the next decade. So today you, you spoke with uh, David, David Liu. Um, so yeah. T- tell me more about this guest.
2: Okay, so first of all, I would say that he is one of the most prolific inventors and scientists of our generation, for sure, maybe ever. Uh, One of my personal heroes. I mean, he... You can't even describe this guy in in two minutes. So I'm just going to do the bare minimum and encourage everyone to look him up online. He does a great tour of his lab um, in a video. So encourage everyone to check it out and and just see how cool and innovative he is, even within his own lab. But just super briefly, you know, he's vice chair of the faculty at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. You know, he co-founded many companies like Prime Medicine, Beam Therapeutics, Editas. He also went to Harvard uh, and graduated first in his class. I mean, he's published, you know, hundreds of academic papers. He's an an inventor on, you know, over 70 issued U.S. patents. So uh, not enough time to discuss just how cool this guy is and and how much he's accomplished in in a very short time.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, he sounds like a a very accomplished guest. I'm excited to hear um, what he's going to talk about. What do you think are, you know, the most exciting things that'll come out of today's discussion?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in base editing and to see where it can go. I think sort of the multiplex editing ex vivo. So doing a lot of edits uh, outside of the body is is just a really interesting concept. And base editing has made that a little bit more simple. So, you know, excited to dig into that and to dig into proteome editing or editing of proteins. I think just understanding from the person who's actually, you know, discovered some of these things in the lab, um, but is still able to communicate it in a the digestible manner uh, will be really great for, for me and for our listeners.
0: All right. Well, I, I know I'll certainly learn a lot today. Um, I'm excited to hear it. Uh, so so let's get right into it.
2: Hello, welcome to FYI for your innovation podcast uh, today is an exceptionally exciting day for me because I get to interview one of my personal heroes, uh, Dr. David Liu. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and welcome.
3: It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to get the chance to, to chat with you.
2: Yeah. So firstly, it looks like you're in space. So can you tell us a little bit about where you are?
3: So this is a, a, a room uh, in our home above the garage and uh, I... I really love projects that marry science and art. My house is full of do-it-yourself science plus art projects. So this was a simple one where the sky is a fiber optic sky um, illuminated with LEDs that come from a vegetable colander that I converted into an LED illuminator. And it's actually the, the, the actual Boston summer sky. Uh, so you can see Orion. Uh, people might be able to recognize Orion's belt is the three dots in the middle of the screen. And uh, you can see um, Gemini, uh, and the, the Dipper is over here somewhere. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's just a nice tribute that sometimes in Boston you uh, have to be indoors because it's a little bit cold. But if the walls... Uh, it's oriented the right way also. So if the walls were to fall uh, in June and you look up, that's what you would see. That's amazing. <laughs> that's really cool. So let's start off easy here uh, in your TED Talk in
2: 2019, uh, which was pretty incredible to listen to for me. I thought you did a really, really great job of explaining just what base editing was, uh, maybe some advantages over other forms of editing. So would love to just maybe start there.
3: Yeah, sure. So um, base editing is a, is a strategy for changing the genome that builds on the seminal work that uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier and Fan Jean and George Church and Virgis Sixness and many others contributed to in uh, discovering and developing the ways that CRISPR agents can sequence specifically bind to DNA. And of course, the work of many researchers before them in using zinc fingers and tail arrays to also bind DNA in a sequence programmable manner. But with base editors, instead of binding or cutting the DNA, which is what CRISPR-Cas9, zinc finger nucleases, and talons all do, instead of cutting the DNA double helix, cutting the chromosome into into two pieces, uh, base editors instead perform chemistry on an individual DNA base at the target site in a living cell and convert one base to another base. So base editors actually uh, rearrange the atoms in one DNA base like C to become instead a base that uh, looks like T or they rearrange the atoms in an A to instead become a base that pairs like G. And so by directly changing one DNA base to another base, you can change the coding of that gene without perturbing the cell and the chromosomes the way that causing a double stranded break uh, tends to do. And so that has certain advantages and and certain strengths compared to strategies, more traditional strategies of cutting the, the DNA double helix.
2: So would one of those advantages be uh, off-target edits?
3: Uh, Yeah, I I think there are a variety of different strengths uh, of various gene editing platforms. One of the strengths of a base editing platform is we can make specific changes from one sequence to another sequence without generating a mixture of uncontrolled products, uh, byproducts. And What many people may not realize who aren't in the field of gene editing is uh, when you use molecular scissors like CRISPR-Cas9 to cut a DNA double helix, to cut a chromosome into two pieces, the cell's reaction in most cases is to try to get those ends back together. But that process can occasionally make mistakes. If it doesn't make mistakes, you end up with the starting sequence that you began with, and then the scissors can cut it again. So eventually, you get to products that have these mistakes, these insertions and deletions of of different numbers of DNA letters. But the thing is, we can't control what those indel, as they're called, those indel byproducts are. So for that reason, when you cut DNA, when you use CRISPR-Cas nine, most of the applications, and right now all of the forty three uh, clinical trials using CRISPR they're all using them in a way to disrupt genes because making these uncontrolled insertions and deletions at a target site is a great way to disrupt a gene. But for most human genetic diseases, you need to precisely fix a gene in order to have anticipated therapeutic benefit uh, as opposed to disrupting the gene. Now, for some diseases, there are very clever ways you can disrupt a gene to help a patient. Uh, Sickle cell anemia, sickle cell disease is, is one of the most famous, where thanks to the fact that we're born with redundant hemoglobin genes, we have a set of fetal hemoglobin genes that produce our hemoglobin when we were in utero. And then we have a set of adult hemoglobin genes that around the time of birth take over, begin to take over for our fetal hemoglobin genes. So those of us who have mutations in the adult hemoglobin genes that result in sickle cell anemia, uh, can be rescued if only we can figure out a way to turn back on the fetal hemoglobin genes that are normally silenced when we, around the time of birth. Uh, So that's what CRISPR therapeutics and Vertex and others have had great success doing. Uh, That's an example where you can mess up a gene and they typically target a gene that's responsible for keeping the fetal hemoglobin genes turned off. And if you mess up that gene in that case, you can benefit a patient by turning on the redundant fetal hemoglobin genes instead to compensate for their mutated adult hemoglobin. But that's a, a unusual case, a pretty fortunate and ideal setup where messing up a gene can actually restore the function of a healthy gene that was otherwise turned off. And unfortunately, in genetic diseases, there aren't that many cases where such a situation exists.
2: And so how does prime editing factor into all this? Do you see some major advantages or challenges that prime editing will have uh, in comparison to base uh, and CRISPR-Cas9? Yeah,
3: so base editing currently um, can make mostly four changes. Uh, It can change Cs to Ts, Ts to Cs, As to Gs, or Gs to As. Those four kinds of changes are collectively called the transition point mutations. And fortunately, the transition point mutations are the most common kind of single letter mistakes uh, that we observe in disease and in evolution in general. And single letter mistakes are the most common class of mistakes that are associated with genetic disease. So for example, in our recent uh, progeria study, uh, we corrected using a base editor, we converted The mutation, which is a C to T mutation that causes most cases of progeria, we converted that T back into a C by converting the A on the opposite strand back into a G. And as a result, we could rescue many of the symptoms of progeria in mice uh, that were engineered to have the human progeria gene. But there are many kinds of genetic changes beyond those four C to T, T to C, A to G, G to A changes. Uh, for example, sometimes an A is mutated to a C, and that causes a disease. Sometimes it's not a single letter misspelling, but instead the insertion of four bases. If you insert TATC at a certain site in a gene called HEXA, you end up with TASEX disease. If you delete three nucleotides in a certain location in the CFTR gene, you end up with cystic fibrosis. So, those are examples of mutations that can't be fixed directly with base editors. And so, we developed uh, prime editing as yet another gene editing technology. Prime editing enables all 12 possible base to base changes, as well as small insertions and small deletions, to take place in a programmed way in human cells. And in, uh, in unpublished results, we've also had some success in animals. Uh, And a number of labs have now uh, published preprints or papers showing the use of prime editing in a wide variety of contexts, ranging from uh, mouse embryos to plants to even adult mice.
2: Incredible. And, uh, you know, I I think maybe it would be helpful if you just discussed how involved you were with base and prime editing, uh, because maybe you're being a little bit too humble uh, on, on when you're discussing these topics. But It'd be really helpful to hear, you know, how this all sort of came about and uh, your involvement with it.
3: Yeah, you know, all research projects are team efforts in, in modern science, uh, especially the life sciences, where experiments are difficult, expensive and take a long time. So, you know, I really give enormous credit to a very talented uh, team of graduate students and postdocs who led all of those projects. Alexis Comor. Uh, former postdoc in the lab, who's now a professor at UCSD, when she was an incoming postdoc in the lab, uh, started iterating project ideas with me, as I often do for incoming postdocs. And she had initially proposed working with systems that might modify RNA in a sequence programmed way. And the brainstorming that that we had, the the email dialogue that we had, Stimulated some thinking about what seemed to be increasingly a, a major problem facing the gene editing field. Namely, gene editing was getting very good at disrupting genes by cutting them. But when I looked at many, many genetic diseases, the answer was clearly well, it's not obvious how you would mess up the gene to benefit the patient. We need to precisely change one base pair to a different base pair in order to fix the disease. Or perhaps we need to install that mutation in order to study the disease and a certain the relationship between the mutation and the disease. So all of those considerations led us to uh, focus instead on uh, how important it w- it might be, how impactful it might be to change a single base pair to a different base pair without cutting the DNA double helix. And that was really the, the start of base editing. And, you know, unlike most projects, the very first base editor, the cytosine base editor, Actually unfolded pretty much like we outlined it in those emails back in 2013. We imagined you know, using, taking advantage of the fact that CRISPR Cas9 can unwind DNA, because the enzymes that do most of these uh, chemical reactions on the bases, uh, at the time, all of them that were known uh, to convert C into something that looks like T, required single-stranded DNA. Um, since then, uh, Joseph Mogus. The University of Washington discovered one that works on double-stranded DNA, which we turned into the first base editor as a side story. But the recognition that CRISPR-Cas9 was well-suited to unwind DNA in a way that would facilitate doing a chemical reaction on an individual DNA base was really the start of Alexis's uh, postdoc project. And so she, once she arrived, she worked for a couple of years and uh, pretty quickly got the system to work. And then the adenine base editor, which is especially important because it turns out that the conversion of A's to G's and T's to C's would correct about half of known pathogenic uh, single-letter mistakes. That was led by a former postdoc, Nicole Godelli, who's now at Beam Therapeutics. Nicole uh, bravely took on this project of trying to basically develop a new class, a second class of base editor, that instead of converting C's to T's and G's to A's, would do the opposite, would convert A's to G's and T's to C's. And the challenge in with her project is, unlike the cytosine base editor, where we could borrow an enzyme from nature that we already knew would convert C into a base that looked like T, there was no such enzyme that would convert A into a base that looks like G in DNA. And so Nicole bravely agreed to break one of the rules in the lab which is you don't start a project if step one of the project is we have to evolve a whole protein just to get started Uh, and she agreed to to try to evolve the first deoxyadenosine deaminase that is an enzyme that would convert a into a base that looked like g in dna instead of in rna or in free floating a and she succeeded in doing that so her you know step one of her project was literally evolve this new enzyme Uh, that hadn't existed uh, before, to our knowledge. And she did, and then she beautifully integrated it uh, through a lot of fits and starts and and a lot of careful analysis uh, into a mammalian cell base editing architecture. And then she also succeeded in, in developing this engineered molecular machine that now can find a target base pair, an AT base pair, and convert it to a GC base pair Uh, quite cleanly in human cells at positions that we specify. And that adenine-based editor is now uh, the basis of a number of both therapeutic and research programs in industry and in academia. And then with prime editors, I had the benefit of another uh, former postdoc in the lab, Andrew Anzalone. Uh, He's now at Prime Medicine. You can see this trend where uh, (laughs) many of the postdocs in my lab that uh, uh, I always... Thought from the beginning, based on their interests, would end up in academia, instead uh, realize the excitement and the potential of science that they developed in the lab, and instead uh, decide to be one of the early employees in a company founded to bring that science to patients. And so Andrew Anzalone interviewed as a prospective postdoc. He was an MD PhD student, uh, did research in Virginia Cornish's lab at Columbia. And in his interview with my rather uh, discerning uh, group, shall we say, Mm -hmm. uh, they normally really kick the tires on post-eye candidates, I encouraged Andrew to present uh, an idea, which he talked to me in in our one-on-one meeting just 30 minutes before his his group meeting presentation. Uh, And his idea was basically the essence of prime editing, was his thought that perhaps you could take a a freshly nicked piece of DNA, grab that nicked three prime end, and uh, use it as a substrate for reverse transcription. In other words, directly copy from RNA onto DNA the bases that you wanted to add to that target DNA strand, all in a living human cell. You know, at the time, it it sounded pretty far-fetched, but none of the steps sounded crazy. Just the project by itself would require... Four or five, almost crazy things to go right. So there was a lot of skepticism, but but I thought um, you know I thought that the impact could be uh, high enough that it was worth taking the risk. So I made him an offer. Uh, I was fortunate that he came, and and then Andrew, you know, I think this will be in in, in the lore of our lab forever. Uh, he got the project to work uh, in a frighteningly short period of time for something that looked on paper to be one of the most difficult projects in the lab. So from the time he arrived to the time we submitted the paper was only one year and I think seven or eight days. And so, you know, I made this sort of uh, joke during the Cold Spring Harbor meeting in which I uh, gave the very first presentation to the world about prime editing. Um, At the end, I just was acknowledging everybody and sort of ad-libbed once I got to Andrew that I was looking forward to seeing what, Uh, he'll do in the second year of his postdoc. (laughs) Um, So Andrew was was totally amazing. And, you know, all of these three projects, even though I'm highlighting the people who led those projects, they all ended up with half a dozen to a dozen people from the lab contributing. And that's really been one of the most important aspects of our lab, is that people are largely chosen and are encouraged uh, uh, to develop on the basis of how well they work with others. And uh, people really work um, not only very hard, but they work to try to maximize everyone else's success, not just their own.
2: Yes, and strong leadership also helps, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's interesting you brought up the companies and, uh, you know, leveraging that expertise uh, to come to the to the companies, which is really interesting. Also, the structure in general of your companies and how many you're involved in is is pretty spectacular. You must be very busy. So, you know, an interesting example is that. Beam has a stake in Prime, uh, you know. So John Evans, Beam CEO, of course, was the interim CEO for Prime, and they can really use each other's and leverage each other's technologies and expertise. So. I'm curious to know, as, as we see the field kind of evolving, there there seems to be different camps in terms of how each company will interact together, especially with uh, one founder that they all have in common. So could you ever see yourself maybe doing sort of an umbrella company with a few subsidiaries that can all, you know, share their IP and expertise? Or do you think, you know, as you continue to build up your
3: company portfolio, uh, they would all be sort of separate entities? You know, since I... Uh, don't provide the financing for these companies, uh, you know, my, my own plans for how they're set up uh, may not be as relevant as your question seems to imply. But uh, in the case of Beam and Prime, it was a really interesting situation because once Andrew started getting results in mammalian cells, uh, I think everybody in the lab knew that something uh, special was happening. And of my fears frankly one of the downsides of that excitement was i remember in the summer of 2019 uh, spending a lot of sleepless nights wondering uh, what the impact would be on beam uh, on the patients that uh, beam was very very well poised to to help beam uh, was and continues to do uh, great science Uh, they have uh, terrific people including a number from my lab and, you know, knowing exactly kind of the considerations you described, uh, I started to think about what would the best way be to bring prime editing to, to patients uh, in a way that was synergistic with rather than competitive with base editing and BEAM. You know, I think the, the first decision I made is, well, if we end up creating a prime editing company, uh, we should do so by involving the same board members, basically, of, of BEAM. Uh, so that uh, we can make sure that the patients that are already poised to benefit from base editing uh, wouldn't be uh, impeded in any way, wouldn't have their the progress on their the development of their therapeutics slowed down or or distracted in any way by prime editing, but instead uh, there could only be benefit. And so, uh, with the help of, of the the Beam investors, the Beam board, um, Arch, F Prime, GV. We set up uh, Prime Medicine t- to really be sort of a sister company, where, as you point out, they actually prime actually had interim management uh, from beam. I think the the leaders at Beam have been fantastic, incredibly respectful of the science, but also very skillful of on the business side. and as a result the uh, from the get-go, a relationship was set up where uh, prime and Beam would uh, benefit each other. And the nature of their agreement, which I think people can read, it's public, or these aspects of it are public, is really designed to maximize the chance that patients benefit from both base editing and prime editing, uh, and that the companies don't expend resources either fighting each other uh, or wasting resources doing redundant things, knowing that in the end, only one. Uh, Therapeutic for a, a particular disease might be the best, or uh, even worse, simply spending hundreds of millions of dollars to learn the same delivery or manufacturing expertise um, that is is such an important and sometimes overlooked aspect of the gene editing industry so in the end i'm I'm pretty happy with with how both of those companies ended up being set up despite the sleepless nights that ironically, that this success, this excitement of realizing that prime editing was working in mammalian cells caused, because I immediately started to wonder, how can this best be brought to patients in a way that helps rather than uh, distracts from the great work Beam was doing?
2: Yeah, I think you sort of, you know, approach that really, really well. Um, I love the ideas of the the companies working together to find, you know, uh, cures or potential cures for for really hard to treat and diseases and unmet needs. Uh, So I think them working together and, and doing what's best for patients is so important as you just uh, outlined really well. You know, here we're talking a lot about humans, but uh, this can also be used in agriculture. So just curious, I haven't seen anything in terms of pipeline, uh, if, you, if that's something that you're interested in or, you know, going after in terms of the companies or just personally. But even when you mentioned, you know, the sky <laughs> in your in your room there, um, it's something that obviously seems very passionate to you. So I'm just curious if that's something you're thinking about, either from a company perspective
3: or, or side hobby? Yes. So uh, with the caveat that I know almost no plant biology, at least <laughs> by plant biologist standards, I think genome editing in agriculture is poised to have a major impact. Along with uh, Fun John and Keith Chun, um I co-founded Parawise Plants, which is a genome editing ag company. It's based in uh, North Carolina, and uh, they are, Using these new technologies, including base editing, to uh, create more nutritious or more hardy crops, and I think they have some exciting um, developments. I'm not sure what's been publicly announced, so I'll refrain from going into details. but you know, I think it's easy to anticipate that genome editing uh, crops, genome-edited crops, uh, may actually be the first accessible product of gene editing for much of society. Uh, faster than genome editing therapeutics, because uh, the timelines are a little bit different, even though it's not trivial to bring a new crop to market, for sure.
0: Right. That's
2: fascinating. I actually did not know about that company. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, that's that's really, really interesting. So to pivot a little bit, talking just about, I guess, uh, you know thinking about how and when costs may decline, uh, obviously, in the context that if we're providing you know, uh, life-saving drugs. Then the idea is is that those drugs will be more expensive, which makes sense. You know, per life year gain that someone will get, and also, uh, you know, for the lack of need to continuously go in for treatment. But if you think about costs declining eventually, uh, which will likely happen. You know, at Arc, we typically think about it from a rights law perspective, which is just a framework to forecast cost declines. And obviously, without using any specific calculations, uh, you know, not putting you on the spot. But, you know, how quickly do you think that that costs are really going to decline for gene therapy or gene editing? And do you think this will happen in a way that therapies can become more democratized?
3: Yeah, I sure hope so. And, And, you know, I think everybody in the field is is hoping and anticipating that that will be the case. You know, virtually every key component of gene editing from discovering and developing the editors to improving them to levels of therapeutic editing efficiency and specificity that begin to be therapeutically interesting to delivery uh, into the right types of cells uh, in ways that ideally don't uh, cause undesired side effects, To manufacturing, um, all of those those components are, in some ways, uh, frontiers. In in when applied to gene editing, I mean, macromolecular delivery is an old, venerable field, but delivery of gene editing agents has almost stimulated this renaissance of the field that has inspired all sorts of crazy new ideas. Some of which actually work pretty well. So, I think there there will be a, a rights law. Decrease in cost, uh, as well as probably a Moore's law decreasing cost, because the mm-hmm. the speed with which people are joining and and uh, advancing the gene editing field is continues to be breathtaking. I mean, many times in the life sciences or in the physical sciences, for that matter, there's you know a, a hot discovery that inspires several years of students and postdocs to join that field. I don't think I've been a part of one that has had such a sustained gravitational pull as the gene editing field, where now we're probably a whole scientific generation has passed, i.e. going from a graduate student to being a professor, and yet the desire is as strong as ever, the interest is as strong as ever to continue to uh, advance that field. So the rate of progress is is stunning, shows no sign of letting up, and you know I think all of us would be incredibly disappointed and frankly would, would I think, refocus our efforts to make sure this doesn't happen if it started to look like any of the therapeutics that might come from the gene editing revolution would only be able to serve a small number of incredibly wealthy patients. That would be, I think, a devastatingly bad outcome. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm optimistic that because of Wright's law, Moore's law, and the ingenuity and the hard work of everybody in academia and in industry that's working in this space, uh, that we will see uh, the second and the third and the fourth gene editing therapeutics, whether it's from CRISPR nucleases or from zinc finger nucleases, for that matter, or from base editors or from prime editors or from mitochondrial tail-based base editors. I think we'll see the nth example of those uh, come at at much reduced cost to development and therefore, uh, cost to the patient than, than the initial examples.
2: Yeah. You know, gene editing and gene therapy, they're just, it's so exciting. Um, we did some research where we looked through clinicaltrials.gov. Um, you know, we noticed that gene therapy and editing trials have increased about fivefold since 2010. Uh, so that, you know based on our estimation would be roughly 170 gene therapies that are likely to be approved and commercialized during the next decade obviously a massive increase to what was previously done so you know i'm curious to know if you think that gene therapy and gene editing could be a sort of a dominant form of therapy and they if they could ever kind of replace uh, the small molecules or biologics of the world
3: in some cases i i would agree with that uh, of course it's important to appreciate that for the most part, gene therapies and gene editing therapeutics are only poised to benefit conditions that have a strong genetic origin. And you know, there are many conditions, uh, if you think of all the drugs you've taken in the past month um, not insinuating anything but uh, <laughs> you know, there're probably things like you took Advil. Uh, which has nothing to do directly with a genetic mutation, probably. So I think there will always be a need for small molecule therapeutics that can uniquely address some conditions, some diseases that uh, may not be appropriate or may not be possible to address with gene editing or or gene therapy. Uh, here I'm using gene therapy to refer to gene augmentation therapy, where you're providing extra copies of a healthy gene. But I agree with your overall assessment that it I think, would shock nobody if a substantial fraction of of, uh, new drug approvals in the coming decades were gene editing and gene therapy drugs, since uh, they represent such a large fraction of investment and of activity in the life sciences right now. And of course, the the need is urgent, because for the vast majority of the initial indications that companies are pursuing in these areas, there is no effective treatment known.
2: So thinking about your early work, I only know it from the amazing papers you publish, Um, but thinking about, you know, I've seen papers from science and nature um, and discussing, you know, using DNA for chemical synthesis. I haven't seen too much follow up on this. I'm just curious, have you moved uh, more towards just focusing on gene editing or are we going to see more about DNA for chemical synthesis in the future?
3: Yeah, so we continue to do DNA-templated synthesis, to use it to discover bioactive small molecules, some of which have uh, relevance at least as probes, if not as therapeutic leads. Uh, And more recently, we're using that platform to evolve uh, sequence-defined synthetic polymers that have really interesting binding or even catalytic properties. So evolving non-natural catalysts that just like proteins can fold into specific three-dimensional shapes that catalyze chemical reactions, but are not made of, of proteins and have side chains that we entirely specify with a genetic code that we entirely specify. Uh, that's uh, one of the, the project areas that that we're working on in, in that side. So the lab continues to have three subgroups of which one is DNA templated synthesis, DNA encoded chemistry uh, of both small molecules and synthetic polymers, uh, the second of which is protein evolution and protein delivery, and the third of which is gene editing. It's just that, you know, as as is often the case in in the life sciences these days, uh, gene editing uh, seems to have an unusual gravitational pull. But I've seen this before. So, uh, you know, I've learned to allow students to vote with their feet, to follow their interests, But uh, there have been times in which our DNA templated chemistry subgroup was by far the largest of the three. Uh, There have also been times in which years in which our protein evolution subgroup was by far the largest of the three. So I think one of the great benefits and and privileges of being an academic is uh, you get the opportunity to work with these incredibly talented students who stay the same average age every year, even as I get older and more senile. Uh, And you have the freedom to really allow them and yourself to follow uh, your curiosity. I think DNA encoded chemistry and synthetic small molecule discovery, synthetic polymer discovery, will always be super interesting and potentially quite impactful. But you're right that right now the the plurality, not the majority, but the plurality of students and postdocs in the group are interested in, in gene editing in the lab. Uh, that said, other subgroups within our lab have really benefited the gene editing subgroup. So, our protein delivery and protein evolution subgroups and the techniques that they've developed have been repeatedly used uh, by the gene editing uh, folks. So, uh, all of our current base editors, CASP proteins, and even some of our, our new unpublished prime editors have been evolved uh, in the laboratory and, and are now quite different than. Uh, the versions we initially reported. So there's a lot of synergy between different areas that will uh, keep uh, emphasizing to me the importance of maintaining, you know, a a diverse research portfolio and not simply uh, researching only in one narrow slice of gene editing, for example.
2: Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, Andrew went from uh, his project basically took a year to the first paper, which is so exceptionally fast. Uh, so definitely a lot of interesting uh, stuff coming out of your lab and, and interesting students with with really good leadership, obviously. I was really excited about the timing of this podcast. One of the reasons was because uh, I've been reading all about uh, the next frontier, which we keep hearing about, which could be proteome editing. Uh, and it. And it you know, this is like hot off the press, you know, I read in the Harvard Gazette, uh, and then I think there was an article in science last week that you can use Botox uh, and that you and your team can use this toxin to target a number of different proteins. Uh, and then it could really help with a few things, which I found really fascinating being regenerative medicine with neuroregeneration, which, as we know, is one of the most difficult things to target. Um, really difficult to find solutions for it, and it can also help with inflammation, overreactivation of uh, an overreaction from the immune system, like cytokine storm, which a lot of people probably have heard of from COVID nineteen. Uh, and I loved in the article; it said something like Botox. You either know it because it gets rid of your forehead wrinkles, or because uh,
3: you think of it as a poisonous chemical. <laughs> which I was like, yeah, that's I guess what people. Yeah, the miracle think. poison. It's been called. Yeah, that was a really cool project that really grew from the contributions of, of many people. Uh, Michael Packer was a graduate student in the lab um, who uh, is now at Beam Therapeutics, actually. Uh, but Michael worked on PACE projects, and uh, one of his, um, his major projects was uh, trying to use a, a PACE system Sorry, PACE is uh, phage-assisted continuous evolution. So it's our very rapid laboratory evolution system that we now apply to lots of proteins, including genome editing proteins, base editors, CRISPR-Cas9, prime editors. Uh, So PACE allows a protein to evolve at a speed that is about 100 times faster than we could previously evolve it. The secret sauce behind PACE is that it takes place continuously because we've mapped every step of the Darwinian evolution cycle onto the life cycle of a bacterial phage, a bacterial virus called a filamentous bacteriophage. And therefore, we can complete an entire generation of Darwinian selection, replication, um, mutation. Uh, We can complete that cycle in sort of minutes to hours instead of the usual week or so that it takes to do manual traditional protein evolution. And that means we can evolve proteins through hundreds or even thousands of generations of Darwinian evolution, which we could never do before. If you evolve a protein through 2,000 generations, uh, which uh, has been done in the paper you just read, normally it would take you 2,000 weeks, which if you do the math is not really compatible with a PhD or postdoc timeframe. So using this PACE system, two former group members, Brian Dickinson, who's now a professor at the University of Chicago, who first developed the selection, And then Michael Packer, now at Beam Therapeutics, showed that you could take a protein and dramatically modify its specificity. So instead of cutting its native target, it still cut that target, but it would also cut some very different target. So we took Tev protease, which is just a sort of famous protease that recognizes seven amino acids, and we used this PACE system to evolve it to cut IL-23, human IL-23, which Differs at six out of seven positions uh, recognized. But we realized that those proteases would still cut the native substrate of of Tev protease. In other words, we had expanded their protease specificity rather than really reprogramming it from one protein to a different protein. And so uh, then came current postdoc in the lab, Travis Blum. So Travis um, developed a negative selection. Uh, System working with uh, with Michael shortly before Michael left for Beam, and then Travis repeatedly uh, refined and applied that new positive and negative protease selection system, which can now select for the ability to cleave a desired protein and against the ability to cleave one or more off-target proteins. Uh, And he applied it over and over again successfully to uh, I think brilliantly chosen class of proteases. Uh, brought to our attention uh, by Ibsen uh, Pharmaceuticals uh scientist called uh, botulinum neurotoxin proteases. So uh, Botox, of course, most people know is the thing that you get an injection of to make your wrinkles go away. Uh, it's actually used as a therapeutic to treat a variety of conditions, uh, but it's remarkable because a Botox has a light chain and a heavy chain. They come together to form the toxin protein. As everybody probably knows, uh, botulinum neurotoxin is very, very potent. So a typical dose might be a nanogram, which is kind of stunning to imagine. Uh, The light chain does the protein cleavage. That's the protease. The heavy chain self-delivers into neurons. And researchers have begun to reprogram that heavy chain to also hit cell types that are different than the cells normally targeted by botulinum neurotoxins. But proteases protein cleaving enzymes that are selective for a specific sequence, in principle, have enormous potential as biological tools and as even human therapeutics, except that there is no immune system for proteases. Unlike antibodies, where we can generate an antibody to just about any kind of antigen uh, using an animal immune system or various laboratory mimics of those immune systems, such a system hasn't really existed for proteases that allows us to take a protease And reprogram it to cut a very different protein selectively without causing it to become more promiscuous. So Travis used this continuous evolution system with a positive and negative selection built in and evolved not one or two but four different reprogrammed botulinum neurotoxin proteases that now hit their new target and don't hit their original target anymore. And in two of those cases there was no known botulinum neurotoxin protease that could cleave the new target. Um, So it was really ambitious shot in the dark that uh, the system was powerful enough to be able to cleave a protein called PTEN, which has no sequence, no obvious sequence similarity to substrates that are natively cleaved by these uh, botulinum neurotoxin proteases. And Travis succeeded in evolving a pretty reasonable protease that will cut P10, but doesn't cut any of the normal substrates cleaved by botulinum neurotoxin proteases. So, you know, this this phrase proteome editing is really an acknowledgement that the era of modern gene editing began when researchers figured out how to program nucleases, DNA cutting enzymes, to cut DNA sequences of our choosing rather than those specified by natural enzymes. And so while it's Quite different and and admittedly uh, it's really an apples and oranges analogy, but the idea of being able to now program proteases to selectively cleave proteins of our choosing rather than the protease substrates that are normally chosen by naturally occurring enzymes uh, raises all sorts of interesting possibilities since virtually any disease and really any biological process you can think of probably has at at some critical point, a protein where if you could selectively cut that protein or activate it, something you can do with a protease, or change where it is in the cell or change its lifetime, change its post-translational modification state, that uh, you could imagine at least a way where uh, that protein cleaving event could interfere with, uh, modulate that biological process in a way that might benefit a patient. So, um, you know, it's a, in it's a very early uh, days. We've repeatedly demonstrated that this platform can reprogram botulinum neurotoxin proteases to be selective yet to cut new proteins. But what we do with it, uh, what and we, I mean, the scientific community, not just our lab, remains to be seen and is, I think, one of the more exciting uh, aspects of thinking about it uh, in terms of what if we could actually cut some significant fraction of different proteins in the human proteome. In some respects, it's actually an easier problem than than gene editing because there are fewer protein sequences than there are uh, DNA sequences. And the math of specificity of recognizing a specific protein in the human proteome, uh, I think, tends to be a little bit more favorable than the math of recognizing a single site in the human genome. But it's, you know, it's part of why I love being a professor. There's all sorts of uh, crazy ideas now we can imagine doing with this system, which, um, you know, at the time that Travis was in the thick of it, trying to r- refine the system and then use it over and over again to make sure that it wasn't just a fluke that his first or his second or even his third success uh, worked was probably a lot of hard work. I mean, it was a lot of hard work. And and uh, now to be able to, to have fun with it and imagine what uh, we might be able to do with it and what other labs might be able to do with the system is really exciting.
2: So you're a little bit busy. <laughs> <laughs> Between base editing, prime editing, you know, now proteome editing. It's really inspiring. So, in addition to being, you know, in my mind, one of the prolif- most prolific scientists, you know, definitely of our time, maybe forever, um, you also have co founded Editas Medicine, Beam Therapeutics, Prime Medicine. Um, how do you divvy up your time uh, and sort of how involved are you in the companies in the day to day?
3: Yeah, so I'm not an employee of the companies, of course, and I am careful to uh, maintain a, a necessary firewall between what my lab does and what the companies do, as uh, as all my institutions require and as is common sense. Uh, but I care deeply about making our science transition from the pages of a journal to uh, to some kind of societal benefit, whether it's more nutritious crops or new medicines for diseases that can't be treated otherwise. So I take super seriously uh, my responsibilities for each of these companies to try to do what I can along with my co-founders. And of course, most importantly, the the leadership and the incredibly hardworking scientists in each of these companies to try to uh, make sure that the company succeeds or fails, not because we didn't try hard enough or didn't put enough money in or, couldn't recruit the best people, but you know, if it does fail, it should only fail because, in the end, we weren't smart enough to figure out uh, some important problem. But I think history suggests that if you uh, if you put science that's reasonably solid together with uh, strong support and uh, and really great people and great leaders, uh, like some of the ones you've already mentioned, uh, like John Evans, you know, really good things happen. So uh, it's been humbling, actually, to see how quickly and how successfully each of these companies has transitioned technology from our lab and from other co-founders labs and not only applied it, but in many cases, taking it in a slightly different direction or improved it in a unique way, all aimed at doing whatever it takes to to bring safe and, and transformative, efficacious new therapies to patients who are suffering from conditions that really don't have much hope right now.
2: So I know you have to wrap up and go in just a few minutes here. But uh, speaking of John Evans, uh, when I asked him, you know, I'm really excited. We're going to be talking to David Liu. Uh, what, what should I ask him that maybe people don't know? He said, well, ask him about his blackjack card counting. So
3: I <laughs> would love to hear more about that. I might take a whole nother podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but as, a, as a teaser preview uh, for about... Uh, four and a half years or so, um, I taught an informal class uh, that met every week uh, in my office. Attendance was one hundred percent pretty much. and uh, uh, and the class was on developing creative new mathematics systems that could beat uh, Blackjack. And we actually we went to casinos um, all across the country and uh, and practiced our uh, tested our systems. Um, with uh, quite successful results, and it was a it was a great experience uh, for me, mostly because I got to know a bunch of remarkably talented students in a very different way. And it was also the smallest class I've ever taught. Uh, before mm-hmm. that, the smallest class I had taught was about sixty students. So uh, this was a, a much more intimate kind of uh, classroom and getting to know students experience. And of course, it was incredibly fun and all sorts of hilarious uh, things happened, uh, as you might expect, because while it's not illegal, card counting is not appreciated by casinos. And so uh, there was definitely a social aspect, a social engineering aspect to the experience that was just as important as the math and theory aspect.
2: Yeah, and I think when we had talked on a previous call, you had mentioned to get into your lab, you can interview for the blackjack portion of the lab or uh, the scientific portion of the lab. Uh, And only one student may have gotten into both, I think you had mentioned.
3: And he chose the blackjack team. So (laughs) yes, there was a, there's a rule when I had the blackjack team that you could either try out for the lab or try out for the team. Uh, Well, you could try out for both, but you couldn't do both. And there is one incredibly talented graduate student, uh, David Cox, who ended up joining John's lab, uh, who is the only person who received an invitation to join both. <laughs> and he chose the blackjack team. <laughs> That's amazing. And then he did wonderful things in John's lab.
2: Amazing! I know you need to to wrap up. Last question: What is going to happen in five to ten years? What's your prediction? Where are we headed uh, in terms of of gene editing? Or is there something you can imagine beyond gene editing in ten years that you'll be working on? It's
3: tough to predict. I think you know five years ago, if you had told me that we would be using engineered laboratory machines to change a single base pair in an animal that suffers from an otherwise incurable genetic disease, and fix aspects of the disease Uh, you know i would have said that sounds a little bit crazy Uh, but i would be surprised and disappointed if within five to ten years there weren't multiple gene editing therapeutics they will inspire all sorts of additional ways of manipulating the molecules of life that currently seem like science fiction the way uh, base editing and prime editing seemed like science fiction five years ago we should all feel very fortunate to be alive during this time when we're witnessing uh, one of the great revolutions in the sciences unfold before our eyes.
0: completely
2: agree. Thank you so, so much for all the insights you provided today. Uh, This has really been a a wonderful podcast and just a a really cool experience for me to be able to chat to
3: you about all this stuff. Well, thanks for your interest and and for the kind invitation to come chat. I really enjoyed it.
2: Great. Thank you so much.
3: Okay. Take care, Ali. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Enjoy the lecture. (laughs) Yes, I got to go teach. (laughs)